you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Moon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, with TV production shut down, will there come a point when there's no more new content to watch? Then we visit the studio of artist Akiko Sterenberger and talk about the competitive world of movie posters. I think I sat down one time and tried to calculate how many posters I've made in 15 years, and it's anywhere from 8,000 to 9,000. So I can guarantee that 90% of them never saw the light of the day. And with KISS on its final tour, a lifelong fan says farewell. That's today on The Frame. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. The coronavirus pandemic has forced the closure of thousands of businesses around the globe. Closer to home, it has also led to the shutting down of pretty much everything in production in Hollywood, movies, series, reality shows, late night soap operas. At a certain point, will consumers have nothing new to watch, and how might that change the future of television? Leslie Goldberg is the West Coast TV editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. First off, how many TV shows have suspended production? It feels like pretty much everything right now. I'd be surprised if there was anything still running in the U.S. right now. It's hard to get a specific tally because we are in a peak TV climate where there are hundreds of TV shows currently being produced. That's just on the scripted side. And you've got, you know, another 700 unscripted shows that aired, uh, you know, last year plus late night and daytime and syndicated talk shows. But it's, a, it's fair to believe that largely everything that was currently in production is no longer in production right now. And in terms of scripted series, I think we can divide the list into a couple of different categories. New series, where maybe a pilot was shot. Continuing series, where maybe there are scripts, but they haven't yet started production. And then there are series that might be nearly finished, but can't quite wrap up all episodes like Fargo. Are those the basic groups of shows? Yeah, I mean, there's basically two types of shows that are being impacted. First, it is largely broadcast. So because of the March timing, a lot of broadcast shows, things like Grey's Anatomy, for example, were in production and nearing the end of their seasons. A lot of those, all of, almost all of those, um, I, like I said, I'd be shocked if there was anything still up and running, have been shut down. So whether that means a show like Grey's, for example, had, I believe was on episode 21 of 25 for its current season, those remaining episodes will, are extremely unlikely to be shot. The priority for resuming production when it is safe to do so will be for shows that were in their final seasons, things like Supernatural, which was at the end of, I think it was a 15-season run and needs to deliver a satisfying conclusion, things like Empire. Um, and then there's the cable and streaming shows. To your point, things like Fargo, which was in production, it was on episode 8 of 10, 
FX removed it from its April premiere date because it's unclear when those final two episodes will be shot. And this is, again, a, a small closed-ended show with only 10 episodes that tells one specific story. So those will eventually have to go back up. Things like Stranger Things, which you know Netflix is going to have to finish because it's allegedly one of their top-rated shows. So yeah, there's it, this is creating quite a, a quandary for a lot of people in the in the industry. Plus, of course, there's scores and hundreds of thousands of people who are out of work, actors, uh, producers, directors, um, set deck, assistant directors, crafty, hair and makeup. It, it, it's just it, we're just at the beginning of of seeing what the larger impact here is. We're talking with Leslie Goldberg at the Hollywood Reporter about the shutdown in TV production. If a show gets delayed and then started up again down the road, there's no guarantee of access to the things the show might need, like a soundstage, directors, editors, writers. Those things are booked months and months ahead of time. So even though this is kind of hypothetical, that could be a big problem down the road, couldn't it? Yes. Well, we are already in this peak TV climate where you had 600 plus scripted shows. And that's just what was ordered. We're not I'm not even talking about the 60 broadcast pilots. Of those that were just ordered between January and, and January and February, only one has completed production. There are some that haven't started at all, some that were halfway through, some that were all but done but needing to do post and VFX, which is another facet of the industry that has yet to be impacted. Those rooms are still working, albeit on trimmed down stages. But we're seeing a massive rush for things like production space. And when everything shuts down at the same time and we'll need to resume the crush and the schedules for those limited sound stages are going to, I mean, some of those, those facilities were already backed up and scheduled out a year or two years or more down the line. And there are a couple of important dates coming up. The upfronts or sales presentations by the networks, cable channels and streaming services to advertisers. And then the start of what might be the traditional fall TV season. How do each of those look impacted right now? Well, right now, because this is a rapidly changing scenario and our world, no one knows what next week is going to look like, let alone next month. So right now we know that the May upfront presentations, this is where broadcast networks present their fall schedules of new shows and returning shows to Madison Avenue ad buyers. That typically generates $6 billion of advertising revenue. Those presentations are all being scrapped in favor of digital presentations, which have really the details of which have yet to be ironed out. But the question becomes is if you can't produce a new pilot and pick up a new show because there's nothing to show because nothing's been filmed or it's incomplete, do you present an incomplete schedule to ad buyers? Will ad buyers still be buying time if we are headed toward a recession? There are a lot of variables here. So streaming services with library titles like Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, and Amazon have a catalog of older work that they could use. But what about legacy broadcast networks like ABC, CBS, and NBC? At what point might they run out of content because they really don't have library that they can put on their air? Well, they can still air repeats of current seasons, which would be a, a boon to writers right now because they are paid residuals if a show like Grey's Anatomy airs a repeat. Do they have unscripted shows that they could re-air? Um, one of my suggestions was to just say, okay, well, we're going to re-air Law & Order SVU from the start, and we're going to marathon it, and it'll be every, you know, every night at 8 p.m. You know, or, you know, there, there are things that they could do. There's still a lot of summer unscripted programming that has been produced and is largely in the can, um, like World of Dance on NBC, which 
um, when things started being shut down last week, it stayed, it stuck it out one more day to complete in, in order to complete its season. And there are a handful of shows that, that did that because they wanted to either complete a season or an episode. Leslie Goldberg is the West Coast TV editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Leslie, thanks for coming on the show. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you. Same to you. Coming up next on The Frame, the art. And for this designer, it truly is an art of making the perfect movie poster. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. We know you may be tired of hearing about the coronavirus everywhere you turn, so some of our content will be COVID-free, like this interview with artist Akiko Sternberger, who designs posters for movies. She's created standout movie and TV series posters for projects including Deadpool 2, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and Veep. She recently released a book with dozens of her poster designs. It's titled Akiko-Matic. I visited Sternberger at her Highland Park studio, when such meetings were okay, to see some of her prints in person. And we started with her design for the 2019 film The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I wanted something very simple and striking, but also surreal at the same time. And so um, when trying to come up with concepts for the poster, I was thinking of things that screamed San Francisco without being the cliche Golden Gate Bridge. So um, upon research and researching and researching, I finally came up with this idea of like, oh, they have these incredibly steep, steep streets. I just thought that this image of him leaning forward and and shifting the perspective of the camera would be um, intriguing to someone to see. And then when you look closer, you finally get it when your brain shifts and you notice that he's just on one of these crazy steep streets. And um, I thought it was a good way of kind of representing both metaphorically and, you know, literally his his struggle in this film. So um, I was really happy when the client let me do this. Of course, um, to also appease them, we had to do uh, a different poster where we showed all the cast. And um, that solution was kind of this montage inside of the two main characters' bodies. I want to talk about another poster that I think you did. It's for Colossal with Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis. Now, Last Black Man in San Francisco gives you an idea of maybe what the film might be about and certainly where it's set. Colossal, you can interpret any number of ways, and the poster doesn't really hint at what this movie's about. (laughs) Yes, it's true. Um, Well, what it is more than anything is kind of a present to people that do actually see the film because... um, At first glance, someone looking at the poster, they might just think it's a very minimalist portrait of a girl. But after you see the film, you realize that her alter ego is a monster and the negative space of her hair makes the exact shape 
of the head of the monster. And since the lips are in the same position for her as it would be the monster, it also hints at the fact that they're the same being. So that's so you a little Easter egg. So you got to step back and squint a little bit. I mean, this is called blind spotting, right? Where you see one image or another image, but you never see the two things at the same time. True, yes. Also the name of a movie. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you about your your work for Funny Games, a movie by Michael Haneke mm-hmm. starring Naomi Watts, mm-hmm. right? This was a really important poster in your career. It Why was. was it important and what was the challenge? Because it was my first illustrated poster that made it into becoming a poster. And um, originally that illustration was supposed to be a placeholder and um, the director decided he liked my illustration better. It was so exciting for me because not only was it an illustration, but it was also simple. Uh, I know the client wanted to add so many things because they were afraid it was too simple. But uh, the director got behind me and said, let's keep it as is. And, uh, you know, I feel it was powerful that way. It's a picture of Naomi Watts and she's crying. And I guess what really is interesting is we don't know what's going on. It says, you must admit you brought this on yourself, but we don't know what she has brought to herself. We don't know what's happening. So it raises almost more questions than it answers. Yes, and I'm hoping that the questions it raises lead someone to go see the movie and realize how (laughs) tough it is. (laughs) I'm gonna ask you about a poster you did for a recent documentary. The documentary is called Bikram Yogi Guru Predator. It is a stack of people doing downward dog, and on top of it is a version, a representation of Bikram Chowdhury, the Khan of Enlightenment. Could you talk a little bit about how this poster came together and what you were trying to communicate uh, in its design? So I, I guess the overall concept when I was watching the documentary was how much his head and his ego got him into the position that he was. If you see the film, you see that he has a very interesting way of of teaching his practice. And uh, in some instances, he actually steps on people as they're in their poses. So I thought it'd be interesting to use that as a way to form this triangle, this pyramid, this human pyramid of him standing on top almost as if he were a god. And um, as far as the painting technique, I looked at old Indian folk paintings to kind of give me a direction for how to paint it so that it all felt appropriate. At what point do you maybe steer the poster away from what the movie might be really about. Because I'm looking at a poster that you did for We Need to Talk About Kevin. And it's a boy sleeping. This is a movie about somebody who shoots up a school. So how much information are you trying to convey? And how much do you want to make sure that you might encourage people but not scare them off? For specifically this movie, I thought the title did a lot of um, heavy lifting. And um, I like this moment of uh, what would normally be a warm mother and child in bed, but the fact that Tilda Swinton is looking off to the side and concerned, I thought that was a good hint of what is to come. Um, I thought the coloring also made it feel a little bit more eerie, so it's just those little small tones that I hope help like hint to the viewer what's up ahead. How much information do you have when you start your work? It varies per project. Sometimes we get to see a screener. Other times we get to see a sizzle reel. 
sometimes we only get a two-line synopsis. So um, because we're brought in at different times during the advertising of the film, and a lot of times people want to start advertising well before the film is even completed, we have to make something out of nothing sometimes, and that's where my illustration skills come in handy. We're talking with Akiko Sterenberger about her work designing movie posters. Even after you come up with something that you might like, there are going to be a lot of people who have to sign off on it. And they might hire a number of vendors. So you might be one of 50, 100 different proposed one sheets. Oh, it'd be more than that. A lot of times there's a possibility all agencies in LA are working on it. You know, that could be 15 different agencies. And within each agency, there could be 20 designers each who are all making at least five posters. So mine can be in a sea of posters. So uh, that's why when one actually becomes an official poster, it's kind of crazy how that happens. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, when I make my work, I'm mostly making it so that I enjoy it. And if it does become the official poster, that's the cherry on top. But uh, for the most part, I come in with more of a realistic perspective going, ah, oh, this probably won't see the light of day, but I'm gonna make it anyway. You have to deal with credit blocks and you have to deal with approvals. And sometimes if one actor is in a poster, another actor has to be in a poster. So how much of your job is negotiating around what is contractually essential to a poster and what you wanna do as an artist? I mean, that happens with every single assignment. <laughs> um, it's rare that I get assignments where they just say go go crazy and do what you would do um, there's always marketing looming over everything and um, you know one of the struggles with Last Black Man in San Francisco is that the client really wanted to show the two characters because their friendship is so important throughout the film but I kept getting stuck on the title saying Last Black Man singular so um, that's kind of where we were able to compromise and come up with two different posters. Uh, but yes, it, it's, it's a challenge for every, every project because a lot of the marketing or the concepts that the clients come with fight against the title of the film or fight against any um, intuitive like first thoughts that you think could be amazing for a poster. So it's always, it's always a struggle. But at the same time, you're that much more proud of yourself in the end when you can figure out how to how to get both. Do you think it's easier to work with an independent company like A24 or Oscilloscope or a major studio that might have a lot more money at stake and a lot more people in the room trying to make a decision? Uh, for me, I love the more independent because they're not concerned about getting every single person in the theater and they're not watering down their advertising because of that. So um, I actually love working on independent projects because they're more open to art. They're more open to unconventional visuals. You did a poster for Jonathan Glazer's movie, Under the Skin, and I don't think it ended up being used. Is it sometimes the case that something that you think you did really well doesn't end up being picked? And what does it feel like when you put your heart and soul into something where you think you've really executed as well as you can and they decide to go in a different direction? Uh, well, after 15 years of doing this, I don't take it personally. Um, I'm used to my things getting thrown in the trash. Um, I approach it with just uh, seeing it as an exercise of, uh, for doing something that I don't normally do and stepping out of my 
my one trick poniness and trying different techniques and concepts. So at the end of the day, I just completely tell myself that it's for me. And if it goes somewhere, great. If not, I'm happy I made it. But um, I think I sat down one time and, and tried to calculate how many posters I've made in 15 years. And it's anywhere from 8,000 to 9,000. So I can guarantee that 90% of them never saw the light of the day. How do you know when a poster works? Obviously, if it gets picked, it works for the studio or the company releasing the film. If it wins an award, it has that kind of recognition. But in your own mind, even if it's not selected, how do you know when you've finished with something? Let's just say the deadlines are not the, a factor. Hmm. When are you satisfied? Actually, deadlines are a factor because if I didn't have them, I could noodle something till the cows come home. So I'm actually glad when those deadlines might be a little crazy because it helps me kind of fall back on what my intuition tells me and it helps me make decisions and commit to them. Akiko, thanks so much for having us over to your office and for sharing your time with us. Thank you, guys. You can see Akiko Sternberger's work and order her book at akikomatic.com. That's A-K-I-K-O-Matic.com. Up next on The Frame, fans of KISS reveal the deep emotional ties to the band that transcend makeup and big hair. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Fans of hard rock and heavy metal aren't exactly well-known for exploring their inner emotions, but now that the rock pioneers KISS have launched a goodbye tour, fans are sharing their feelings. The Frame contributor Paul Ratliff, himself a lifelong KISS fan, wanted to tell their story. It's a story of a bond that goes beyond the band's makeup and theatrics. So it's 1978. I am seven years old, and I'm sitting in a giant walk-in closet in my best friend Robbie's bedroom. The closet is lit by a string of Christmas lights. He puts a needle on a record, hands me an album cover, and I hear this. Robbie points to an illustration on the album cover and tells me that a demon is singing. In that moment, I experience a kind of imprinting. Kiss instantly becomes my first favorite band, and right there, yes, in a closet... I become a lifelong member of the KISS Army. The in, the world, KISS! in 1978, KISS are the biggest band in the world. It's an era that diehards refer to as Super KISS. There were books, magazines, a TV movie, and a merchandising campaign the likes of which the industry had never seen. Introducing KISS Your Face Makeup, just like the makeup worn by Gene, Paul, In the 80s, as I struggled into my teenage years, KISS struggled to compete with the hair metal bands of that era. In an act of self-preservation and maybe the most exciting event of my childhood, KISS surrendered their makeup and were reborn as actual human beings. Exclusively here on MTV this evening, we are going to see KISS without their makeup for the very first time. What emerged was a different kind of KISS. This KISS championed the underdog. They were anti-authoritarian and they were all about self-empowerment. This is the KISS I loved the most. Captain, 
As a gay kid growing up in a tiny desert military town with a homophobic father in the Reagan era, I needed this version of Kiss. And while my father was policing my clothes and my hair, Kiss was sending me a completely different set of messages. When KISS announced they were going on their last tour ever, I had a surprisingly strong emotional response, and I started to notice that other fans were having similar experiences. So I wanted to talk to them, and I knew just the place to go. Vegas. Right now, we are standing here in our Love It Loud Rock and Roll Wedding Chapel. So it's our KISS Wedding Chapel. It's all themed out for rock and roll. Michelle Vermillion is general manager of what's essentially a giant KISS refuge inside the Rio Hotel in Vegas, where they have KISS-themed weddings and glow-in-the-dark mini-golf. Uh, we also, in our venue, have the largest public collection of KISS memorabilia. So it's almost like a mini-museum right inside of our venue um, with Tons and tons of items that KISS fans love to check out. And some of those fans become employees. Wyatt Allison, who is 21 years old, discovered KISS in a video game when he was eight. They're the most realist form of superhero that you can ask for. You know, you, you have Spider-Man and you have Hulk and, and all, which is cool and all. No one does it the way KISS does it. You know, Gene Simmons spitting blood and Paul Stanley flying to the middle of the crowd to greet his fans. It, it just never gets old for a KISS fan. I'm the product of a bloody divorce from my parents, so I buried myself in my room and I had a lot of kids. Glenn Rhodes is a former employee who has followed the band for over 40 years. They were my family. My family was fighting each other and I was in my room listening to Kiss and that's, they got me through. Back in the chapel, Lucy Veltri, a makeup artist, is helping a bride get ready. Right now, I am putting on a base coat of white. And I do that with a sponge because that kind of gives it the airbrush look instead of having kind of like brush stroke streaks. Dusty is marrying her boyfriend, Tennessee, after 20 years together. She will have Paul Stanley's makeup, white face, black star over her right eye. What inspired you to have a kiss-themed wedding? Our daughter has autism and she has a huge attraction to KISS and she wanted to have something fun and we wanted to do something fun for her. So that's why. When you have that, she's come through so much. The fact that she's out here moving around and, you know, it's all about uh, my kid. She deserves as much life as anyone else. But yeah, Lene. Hi. So you're a big KISS fan? Yes, sir. What What is it that you like about KISS? The music. A lot of people with autism aren't even vocal, but you can put music in their life, and it opens up every pore of their being. That is why we're doing this today. And going to mess up your makeup. Don't cry. Don't cry. <laughs> For The Frame, I'm Paul Ratliff. You According to the band's website, the KISS End of the Road Tour will resume next month in Central and South America. And that'll do it for today. But just a note, before we go, we have paused our spring member drive, but we can't pause the need for member support. So please help us get to our $1 million goal and donate now at kpcc.org. I'm John Horn. Stay safe and healthy. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center.
Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events.